You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, we pick up in Romans where we left off before Easter. Pastor Josh is finishing up chapter 13 as we push ahead toward the end of this book. It's our prayer that the Holy Spirit would challenge and change us as we study God's Word together. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 13? Romans 13, 8 through 14 is our text for today. Uh, And welcome back to the Romans series. The past three weeks, I pray, have been good uh, for you. I know they have been for for me as as I've been able to journey through God's Word and had the honor of of preaching that uh, as we we looked at at Easter through through a different angle and a different lens. And and just as a reminder, because it plays in very much to not only what we, we will speak about today, not only what we will read in Romans, Romans 13, but really for the remainder of our life. Uh, for three weeks, we, we looked at the cup, the, the cup of Christ. And, and it was three weeks ago that we looked at Jesus in the garden as he is uh, praying that, that, that prayer that most of us have, have come to know uh, over the course of our life. Father, if it could be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And it was on that day that we looked at what was so important about that cup, what was in it that God the Son would speak to God the Father and ask him to, to change his mind about the, the unfolding that was about to happen. So we look back at Jeremiah 25 and we see that throughout Scripture, the cup is always representative of the wrath of God, that inside the cup would be full. And, and Jeremiah's charge in Jeremiah 25 was to go to all the nations and to make them drink of the wrath of God, starting with God's people in Jerusalem. And so, so from there, we, we see that the, the cup was weighty, and it was right for Jesus to, to pray that and to feel those feelings. And then, then we look the second week of that Easter series of, of Christ on the cross, and then he, he gives those famous last words. And, and to us, he says, it is finished. And what was finished? What, what, did, he, what did he mean when he yells out to tell us day? It, it is done. It is complete. It is finished. What was that? Well, as we can understand it theologically, Everything that was in the cup is now gone, for he has satisfied the wrath of God for all those who would be in Christ, right? And and so now on Easter Sunday, we took a a glance at what does his resurrection mean for us? And the way that Jeremiah is given a mission to go to the whole earth, to, to tell of the wrath of God and to make them drink. We are given a new command, a new mission, as it were. Same, same premise. Go to the whole world, but this time we're not preaching wrath. We're not telling them that they are going to die and there is no hope. What we are telling them is there is now hope in Christ alone. So that's the call on our life. And it's out of, of that, out of that resurrection message, out of the Great Commission, that we get all of the New Testament letters. For each and every one of them are great authoritative helps and guides to help us accomplish the task that has been trusted to us. Because it could be one thing to say, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you until the very end of the age. And then there's a lot of gray area of, okay, what do we do? How do we do it? What message is going to work best? What should we do? What should we stay away from? That is where we get these New Testament writings. And it's in this that we understand who God is, understand who we are, and how we live it out. That is the book of Romans. 
First half is theology. It is heavy to understand who God is and who we are. And then the second half of Romans is, is how we live this life out as great commission followers of Christ. So with all of that being said, I want us to, to, to have an understanding of, of Romans 13 again, because it's been a minute, right? So particularly how these great commission followers of Christ are going to, to, to carry the gospel, Paul is writing a letter to the church, to the Christians that are gathered in Rome. And something's going on in the city. And it's, it's generally this. Now, there's a lot more, but it's generally this. There's Jewish believers and there's Gentile believers. And they both love God and they both, they both have committed their life to Christ. That's not the issue. The, the, you're you're going to hear it a lot today. The vertical love of, of man to God is not an issue for them for they would say, they would confess that Christ alone is what it takes to be saved and we believe in that. So the vertical work is established. It's the whole horizontal work. It's the how do we love each other if that first thing is true. That's where they're getting hung up. Because what the Jews are saying is, yes, it is Christ alone, but you need to be more Jewish in your worship styles. You need to to remember the Jewish holidays and you need to keep them holy because that's going to make you a better follower of Christ. Well, the Gentiles on the other, uh, other side saying, we don't need to be Jewish. We need to be Christian. We don't, we don't need to follow the, the ways of, of, of the messianic uh, portion. We need to understand that, or the, the Hebrew portion, we need to understand that Christ, the Messiah, is the one that we are following. So there's a rift in the church. So Paul writes him a letter, and essentially he's saying this, hey, the only thing that can fix the fracture in the church, the only thing that could, could make unity where there's disunity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in this gospel you need to understand. Your truth of gospel and your truth of gospel cannot be different. Just because you believe this strongly and you believe this strongly doesn't make either of you right. What is right is what God has already established as the truth. And so Paul takes the first part of his letter and he recenters them in truth. Not Jewish truth, not Gentile truth, but truth. Absolute truth. 100% unfettered truth. And once they grasp that, it is out of that that they begin to live this life that is going to glorify God and advance the kingdom. Now, with that understood, we find ourselves in Romans 13. We are in all the application chapters of Romans. Romans, this is the good stuff. We, we start in chapter, chapter 12, and this, this is where it gets good. Uh, I told you guys a couple of weeks back, if you were here, Pastor Sean was the last one who preached out of Romans for us, and he had the first seven verses of Romans 13. <laughs> if you are wondering why I'm laughing like that, or maybe you are snickering uh, in the moment, if you go back and you read that, that is the whole submission to authorities chapter. That, that is the understanding, and this is, this is hard. It's easy to say, completely easy to say. It's easy for you to read. It's incredibly hard for us to apply this to our daily life because essentially this is what he says in the first seven verses. There is no authority on this earth not, not just in Jerusalem, not just in holy cities, not just in churches, but there's no authority that's on this earth today that has not been sovereignly established by God. That doesn't mean that it is going to be good and beneficial for you feeling in the moment. 
But you can guarantee, you can write it down. There is no leader that has ever existed that God has not established. Now, hear me out. That does not mean if we have evil leaders or evil things happen on the globe that God is causing the evil. That is not what this is saying. It is saying that God is sovereign over it all and he is working in it. That's hard. Easy to say, hard to understand and apply. But the point isn't necessarily, well, you need to look at the leaders of this country and this country and this country and submit your lives to them only. The point is there's a greater mission at hand. And I want to point your attention to, to one last setup verse before we get into our text today. Today we're going to start in verse 8, but I really want you to start in verse 7. So, so go back with me, if you will, and I want you to go back to, to verse 7, and I want you to, to read it with me, okay? Romans 13, verse 7. Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Right? So so as we look to this, it now is going to lead into verse 8. Now read that. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, all right? So as we are dropping in the middle of a thought here on authority and submission, the entire chapter of of 13, right? We are reminded that Christ is the absolute authority. That no matter what king we sit under, what ruler we sit under, what president we sit under, that Christ is still on the throne. Nothing will ever change that fact. So verse verse 7 says, with that in view, then then what you need to understand is whatever is required of you here, you just need to go ahead and do that. But understand, that's not the main thing. That's not where the fight lies. So let let me try to explain it this way. Since we are living for a kingdom that is not this one, we are to trust God's sovereignty and trust his plan. So if that's true, and you may not like the place where you are currently residing, or you don't like the, the government or establishment that you're in, hear me, this is not a political message today. But let's say that's you, and let's say you're not here. It is not in the Christian's best interest to get caught up in that fight and spend all their energy saying what they will and won't do, and fighting for what they believe is to be what is to fight for and miss the entire call on their life that God has established for them. That doesn't mean we are not to be involved in political things. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to vote. All of those things we should do and should be in this world and being salt and light. But listen to me, that can't be where your energy ends. That's Paul's point here because what he's saying is, look, if you owe taxes, just pay them. If you owe an employee, just pay them. If you owe respect, give it. If you owe honor, give it. Because you don't want to waste your time fighting there. In the first century church, this would have been a big deal, especially in Rome. Each one, either one, would cause a huge fight or cause anger for years. And here's potentially how it would go down if you get caught in this battle. So if I'm going to give you this illustration and you can feel yourself here, I want you to be able to say, whoa, maybe I need to reassess where I am. Because you you may be feeling this just shortly, okay? Here's how it went down then and here's how it goes down today. If you owe someone, 
but you don't have what you owe them. Or you don't think you should have to pay them. Or you don't want to pay them. It's going to cause you to hide from them, avoid them, and sometimes run from them. So, so let, me, let me explain it this way. Uh, in, in the world of even debting, right? Debt, debt collecting. So sometimes we get in a, in a tough spot where we have taken out a loan. We, we've taken out something that we are now owing on. And things are good when we have money to pay it back. But in the, the moment that you don't have money, do you think that that creditor company is going to come to you and say, hey, Mr. Braddy, I know you have an, you're in a tough spot this month. Well, you know what? Let's just worry. Let's just wipe out that debt. Don't even worry about it one more second. Has that ever happened to any of you guys? Nah. What do they do? Start calling. Start emailing. They start calling from different numbers. It's the reason why some of us ain't answered a number that ain't in our phone for 10 years. We're hiding. We don't want to talk to anybody who might bring up our past. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's something else. So, so, so Paul says, though, if, if you owe somebody, you should pay them, right? That, that's what verse 7 would say. But then, then, he, then he goes on to, to say something, something to this effect. Maybe it's the same thing with respect and honor. You don't think they deserve respect. You don't think that they deserve honor. And if you get caught in this, and if this becomes the thing that you are spending your energy for, then generally you are going to do the exact opposite. So if you think that they should not be respected, you're going to hold them in contempt. If you don't think they are worthy of your honor, you are going to dishonor them just to make you feel better about the opinion that you hold of them. Again, this is not a matter of politics and money. He's using it as an illustration to prove a point. That if you get caught up in earthly battles, if you waste your time in earthly fights, you are going to be useless for kingdom work because you are going to be too exhausted to engage what God has called you to. So if you owe something, pay it. If somebody's worthy of respect, respect them. If they need honor, give them the honor. We have bigger things in front of us. So we get to verse 8, and we begin to see what the bigger things are. He says, so owe no one anything. Now, this is Dave Ramsey's favorite verse. Take a minute, think about it. They would quote this and say, this is where you should cut up all of your credit cards. This is not speaking of credit cards. Essentially what Paul is saying, let nothing hinder you from the mission that has been given to you. Whatever it's going to take to get out of debt, whatever it's going to take to get you out of the earthly fight and into the eternal fight, that's what you need to do right now today. So if you owe somebody, pay it. If somebody is demanding respect or honor from you, give it to them. We're not here to fight for those things. We're here to fight for something bigger. Owe no one anything except there is a debt. And here's the debt. He says, except to love each other. Now, when we talk about this, it is going to have some shades of feeling like it's going to be works-based or, or you need to be doing this if, if, right? So I don't want you to hear that. We, we are all operating under, we understand the first 13 chapters of Romans, or the first 12 at least. 
The only reason that we are saved is by Christ alone, through faith alone. Right? It's the grace of God that saves us. We, we didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We're not going to keep it. God gave it to us. God holds it for us. That's established, okay? Now, with that being said, there is a debt that we owe. It's not to God. The debt that we owe is not to God. We can't repay God. There is a debt, though, and there's a debt to humanity, and you're going to see that unfold in just a moment. And it's a debt that we need to understand stands before us every day. It's not about our bills. It's not about what we think we owe. It's not about the the, the honor and the respect. It's about this. This is our life, except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All right, now, this is, this is big, okay? We, we see this, and we see kind of this, this wording of, of fulfillment of the law. He says, if, if, if you want to get caught up in anything, let, let it be loving your neighbor. Let it, let it be loving those that are around you. This kind of comes from, from the grand, grand understanding that Jesus gives in, in John 13, 35. You can write that down and remember this. By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have, what? Love for one another. Now again, we're not trying to oversimplify for the sake of simplification, but we are trying to get as clear as we possibly can be. And in clarity, here's what we need to remember. It will be our love for the world that proves to the world that we belong to Christ. Not our church not our giving, not our ability to say yes and no to things, but it will be the way in which we can love those who don't love us back. One of the most powerful statements that we see in Passion Week is Jesus is going to Golgotha. They're whipping, they're fighting, they're spitting, they're yelling at him. And he has every right to call down heaven and destroy them all. But instead, he goes before the Father, even in the midst of pain, and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is our standard. That type of love is the standard that we now hold and bear. So what Paul would say, and what Jesus is saying in John 13, 35, by, all, uh, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple, if you have love for one another. So Paul says, by the way in which we love, they're, they're going to know. So when we hear the Great Commission, making disciples of the whole world, this, this truth should ring in our ears. We are not going into the world with an academic message. We're not going into the world to say, hey, can I sit down with you one second? I need to draw this thing out for you. The way the world's going to hear us is by us loving them. That's going to be the way that we get in. That's going to be what captivates them. If you don't think that's true, I want you to go back and I want you to look at the red letters of the Gospels. And I want you to see every time Jesus engaged somebody with an eternal truth, what did he always first do? He met their need and loved them right where they were. Loving doesn't mean that he approved of their life. Loving doesn't mean that he said, hey, you know what? Just keep doing what you were doing. Surely it can't get worse. But he loved them. In grace and in mercy, he spoke truth to them and pointed them to redemption, to the heart of the Father. And they followed Christ because of it. 
If we are still trying to work out in our minds, what is this owing of love to, to each other? What, like, like, what does that practically look like? Paul's going to give some clarity. Look at verse 9 and following. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Again, we are not trying to oversimplify for simplification's sake, but a lot of times when we get to Old Testament and we begin to have our daily Bible reading plan through the Old Testament, it's pretty much when we get to like Leviticus, that we're like, man, I just love the Bible. I can't wait to dive in for an hour today. Well, generally that's not the case because it seems like law after law, and then there's like this book of numbers, and, and, and like there's, there's the whole thing. And we're like, what does this have to do with anything? So to give us clarity on the entirety of the law, it is to help us do two things. The law was established to help us love God and love people. Now, the law is there to expose our desperate need for God to, to work in our hearts so we can do that properly. We can't keep the law. It's impossible that in and of ourselves we can keep the law. We cannot do it. But it's also in the law that, that when you get to those restrictions, the dietary restrictions, or you can't touch this, or you can't go here, it was all built out of love for God and love for people. So when, when, when Paul says, okay, how do, you, how do you practically love your neighbor? How do you practically live out that debt that you owe them? He, he, he lists some from the horizontal list of the Ten Commandments. You know, in the Ten Commandments, there are two lists. There's the vertical list and the horizontal list. The vertical list is, is the ones that pertain to you and God. Horizontal list is the ones that pertain to you and other people. So this is the list that he is speaking of here. It's the one that, that, that's here. So remember, the, the church in Rome, they're good here. Struggling here. That's why he brings it up. So, his point well made. But just for clarity's sake, let's do it. If you love your neighbor, truly, if you love them, you will not commit adultery. If you're married, you will not pursue someone else. If you're single and you become infatuated with someone who is married, you will not pursue them. So, so generally, that, that's a good rule to follow if you're going to love your neighbor, right? Now, this is important because Rome, I'm pretty sure there were some of the people reading this that said, oh, that's good information to have. The reason I make it clear, because what if you come with the response, but Josh, what if I really, really love them? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to have what I desire? Remember, you, we, us don't get to define what love is. God does. We, we need to understand that, okay? And so you can feel all kinds of ways, but if God's word tells us no, then it's no. If he tells us yes, then it's yes. This word is definitive and final. All right, what, what about the next one he brings up? Murder. If you love your neighbor, you won't murder them. But Josh, some of you married folks might respond. But what if I love them so much, I just want to kill them? Still a no. Okay. What, what about stealing and coveting? That, that's what he brings up here. 
If you love someone, you, you won't steal what is theirs. And you won't want to steal what is theirs. But what if it's really, really nice and I really, really desire it? Still a no. What if I believe that God wants me to have what they have? Weird and religiously twisted and still a no. All of this is summed up in Deuteronomy 6. So, so this is Old Testament. And then again, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. And essentially, Jesus is asking Matthew, they're trying to catch him in a, in a moment where they can figure out some kind of blasphemy and arrest him on that charge. What's the most important command out of all the scriptures? And he starts, he says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, but the second one is just as important as the first. So it's not one and two, it's one and one. The second one is just as important as, as love God with all that you are. It's love your neighbor as yourself. And essentially what he goes on to say there is he says that all the laws of the prophet hang on those two. So if you were looking at a wall and you wanted to hang up all the laws that God has given to anybody, you anchor in those two things, love God and love people, and you can hang every law on there and they're going to fit. And so with that... We see it as love God and love people. And just a bit of clarity here. Many times we hear this passage, love God and love people. We, we get to that point where it says love, uh, love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we begin to think that we need to love people in the same way that we love ourselves. That's not what it's teaching. If that were true, then on the days that you felt great about you or towards you, then you would treat people well. On the days that you feel awful about yourself and you hate yourself, then you're not going to treat people well. We are not the standard by which we love. Christ is the standard by which we love. Love your neighbor. Listen to it this way. Love your neighbor in the same way that Christ has loved you. That is a whole game changer right there. How has Christ loved you? Love them. If you were ever wondering and you're doing life and you wonder, hey, how should I love this person? How did Jesus love you? Well, they're really hard and difficult to be around. Was there any stories in the scripture that teach of somebody who didn't like Jesus all that much or they were just really antagonizing towards him and Jesus flies off the handle and just smashes them? No. We see love being patient and kind. We see Christ in a way that is now our standard that we live out to the world. Love your neighbor in the same way that Christ has loved you. But why the strong focus on loving your neighbor? Which, if you are asking the question, this is a whole other sermon for a whole other day, some people may ask, well, Josh, who's my neighbor? Uh, that, that has been addressed in the Gospels. Everybody you come in contact with is your neighbor. So, so why, why the big focus here? Why the big focus on loving your neighbor? Verse 11 gives extreme clarity for that reason. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Church family, time is running out. Again, this, this isn't one of those scaremonger things and you shouldn't say, oh, no, time's running out. As a believer, we are running as far and as fast as we can to see our Christ face to face. That should be the joy of our life. 
What I'm telling you is that day is coming sooner than you could ever imagine. And if that's true, and the Bible says that it's true, then we better be about the mission that he has called us to be about. For Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that it's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. We're going to give an account for the life that we live that God has trusted to us. And hear me out. I want to be clear again, just in case you've missed it the last three weeks or today. The mission for every born-again man and woman is to make disciples of all nations. That is the mission. That is the work that we are to be about. Listen to me. That is the judgment to which we will be held. When I say judgment for the believer, I am not saying wrath of God judgment. That has been satisfied in Christ. I am saying for the accountability that we will be held to as we stand before Jesus and we present to him the crowns of life that we have gathered. I don't know fully how this is going to work. The Bible is not incredibly clear on this, but from the best that we can make out, we are going to have an opportunity to be really proud of what we've done or not. When we stand before our king, and he says, what have you done with what I've given to you? What will you say? So, if you needed any kind of encouragement, he says, beside this, you know. The time, the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Church, it is time to wake up. All of this is real. The king of glory is Jesus Christ, and he is coming back. We've been given a mission to accomplish right now. The Great Commission Church is not a hobby to be dabbled in when we find time in our busy schedules. It is the reason you have your jobs. It is the reason you have your marriage. It is the reason you have your children. It is the reason you have your education. It is the reason that you have breath in your body to fulfill the mission that stands before us. So what do we do? So then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Church, it's time to throw off everything that stops us from doing that. Everything. And it, I don't think it's easy enough for me to say, generally, we should do this or not do this. I think each and every one of us, individually, we are still fighting flesh and spirit. And there are going to be things that you battle that are hindering you that aren't hindering me. But there will be things that I am battling and are hindering me that aren't going to be hindering you. And the wild thing about this is, we're going to need each other to figure those things out. Because generally, and, and this is strange this side of eternity, we tend to like the things that are killing us the most. That's the things we, we don't want to, we, we call them pet sins. Those things that, that maybe we, we will say we are disgusted by all those wicked things, that stuff that media is giving out, we're mad at those things, we don't like those things. Yeah, but what about what you're doing when nobody else is around? The stuff you're watching stuff you're reading, the stuff you're into, the stuff that your mind wanders to, and you don't take those thoughts captive. It's those things I'm telling you, church, that's hindering you from the mission of God that stands before you. 
And so from here, we have this call in our life to throw off all of those things. The Bible says, cast it off, cast off the works of darkness and instead put on the armor of light. Again, in a soaring moment like this, we can find ourselves being really fired up, but asking the question, all right, what do I do with that? Paul gives an answer. Now remember, this answer is given to first century Rome, but I guarantee you it is applicable 100% for 21st century America and Madison. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. If you've never read that verse before, you're like, oh, it'll be a fun lunch. Enjoy discussing that with your children. Certainly not an exhaustive list. How do we know? Because in other letters, Paul is going to give a similar but different list. But I think it is safe to say, church, that as church folks, we believe that orgies and drunkenness are not helpful when it comes to proclaiming Christ and advancing the kingdom, right? We would say that's not part of the believer's life, or at least it should not be. We can all galvanize to say, we don't want that. But I want to be crystal clear. In this list, and it is equal, as much as orgies and drunkenness is not helpful, quarreling and jealousy is not helpful either. And that's the stuff that hits home for all of us. We begin to look at all the things of this earth and we'll say, man, I don't want, I don't want any of that wickedness. I don't want that stuff around me. I don't want that around my kids. Yet we go home and we bicker about things all the time. We're jealous of what they have. And you don't want your kids to be around things that, that are of the first part of the list. But you are constantly feeding them the things that are in the last part of the list and we think it's okay. That's why the gospel should lead us to contentment that we desire the, the next world more than this world. And that's what we are giving to our kids. That's what we're giving to our spouse. That's what we're giving to our coworkers. That's what we're giving to our classmates. That's what we're giving to everybody who comes in contact with us. We are not living for this world. We are living for the world to come. So Paul says it's time to wake up, church. Time's running out. Nighttime is ending and daytime is coming. When we see this in the scriptures, nighttime generally means when, when God, when Christ has not returned, night, daytime means that Christ is returning. There's coming a day soon where the opportunity for salvation, redemption, and freedom are no more. So what do we do? As our worship team comes back up and we, we move into a time of response, verse 14 is crystal clear. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The wording here suggests every day. Now, to be clear, this is not meaning getting saved every day. That's a one-time thing. So what does it look like to put on the Lord Jesus Christ every day? And, and for me, I'll give you my way of, of doing this. It is not the way, it is a way. When you wake up in the morning, your prayer becomes something along these lines. Lord, I am yours, and you are mine. Help me to remember all the ways that you love me. Help me to love others in that exact same way. 
in the same way that you pursued me with love and pointed me to you for salvation, help me love others that they can see you and experience your love so that by your grace they too can be saved and then sent on mission. For me, that's how every day I at least attempt it to start. Something along that, something in that vein, something with that heart to say, Jesus, I know, I know I am prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. So here is my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. But how do we stay there? Because if you're like me, if we're similar in this, it's when we are in God's word and we're in prayer that life is good. It's sweet. The outside world fades away. So what happens when we close this book and we grab our keys and we walk out the door? Paul speaks to that as well in the last part of verse 14. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't even give a thought to the sinful side of who you are. If you do, you're feeding it and it'll grow. If you don't, you will starve it and it will die. The word provision here is this idea of um, gathering things for. I think it fits perfectly with the great commission that stands before us. Here's why. Because in this great commission, we understand that we are leaving our comfort and we are going. And as we are going, we're making disciples. And a lot of times when we go on journeys, a lot of you travel for work or play, you will spend a lot of time packing and you are thinking about the things that you will need while you're gone. It's really no different when we understand the journey that sits before us. We need to be thoughtful in what we pack as we are going. But a lot of times, and this is just the nature of who we are, and we need to confront it today. We will say, well, I need God. I need his word. I need the Holy Spirit to guide me. I need the, 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 the solidification of Christ being my Savior, and I walk in that every single day. I need that. But I also kind of like these other things, too. They keep me comfortable. And again, it may not be the, the really wicked stuff that we talked about in the first part of that list. But the equally damaging, and honestly, equally as wicked, the jealousy, the bitterness, the rage, we pack those into. So Paul says, take no provisions for the flesh. Don't put them in your bag. Don't bring them with you. Leave them behind. You don't need them anymore. You got a different job. So with that being said, What's holding you back from completing the mission that stands before you? That's the call that we will ask today. In just a few moments, we'll have an invitation time where you can come and you can pray. You can pray at this altar. I would love to pray with you. There'll be other ministers who are praying with you. There are people right outside that door. But for believers in the room, the Bible is clear. It is time to wake up. It is time to put our selfishness aside and be about our Father's work. What are the things that are keeping you from doing just that? Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. Your incredible love is unbelievable. We can't fathom it. 
but we are so thankful for it. So Lord, I ask now that the mission that we read begins to take root in our heart and our minds and begins to grow. I pray, Lord Jesus, that it would be the thing that consumes our thoughts and our minds and then our lives. It will be what we spend every waking moment on, every lasting resource that we have, and every bit of who we are on this side of eternity will be leveraged to do what you've called us to do. Help us put down the things of this world and help us to put on our Lord Jesus Christ every day. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?